0: Hey everyone, I'm Cole, and I'm from Loveland. No really, I grew up in Loveland, Colorado, the self-proclaimed Valentine capital of the world. Every February, thousands of Valentines pour into Loveland's Sweetheart Station, aka the post office, where an army of retired volunteers stamp them with a special Sweetheart City stamp and forward them on to all the lovers in the world. We're sort of like the North Pole for love. Every lamppost in town gets covered with bright red hearts, where you can post a message to your loved one as part of the annual fundraiser for the local Rotary Club.
1: This has been a tradition since February of 1947. Every year a Miss Loveland Valentine is nominated and chosen to represent our city. In her duties, she travels across Loveland and even to the state capital, spreading the
0: message of love from our sweetheart city. That was Jamie Felton, Miss Loveland Valentine, 2011, herself. It's safe to say that my childhood felt a little oversaturated with hearts and cupids. So it was pretty easy to notice, as I grew up, that the rest of the world is also pretty obsessed with love. Of course, nearly every other pop song is about love, but it's not just that everyone's singing about wanting love. In so many songs, it sounds like love is everything. The Beatles say it's all you need. Barbra Streisand says it's the only thing there's too little of. Dumbledore basically says it's a magical force that can vanquish evil.
2: Harry, do you know why Professor Quirrell couldn't bear to have you touch him? It was because of your mother. She sacrificed herself for you, and that kind of act leaves a mark. Oh no. This kind of mark cannot be seen. It lives in your very skin.
0: What is it? Love, Harry. Love. Okay, but what is love? It's somehow mystical, intangible, undefinable but also all-powerful. If you ask someone how they know they've fallen in love, the most common response you'll hear is, when you know, you just know. If that's true, then I have a confession. I don't think I've ever fallen in love. I've never gone head over heels for someone and thought, this is it, this is what everyone has been talking about, I get it. And don't get me wrong, I would love to know what the fuss is about. So for a few years now, with a sort of Alien-like curiosity, I've been asking people about their experiences with love and collecting our conversations. I ask people how many times they've been in love, how they could tell it was love and what it felt like, and what it actually means to them to love someone. And what fascinates me is that after years of these conversations, I still really haven't heard the same answers to these questions more than once. And that's basically what this podcast is about. How can something so universal something that is supposedly the glue that holds society together be felt so personally and experienced so differently and be so multifaceted in this first episode i'll take a peek through just a few of the lenses that could be useful to make sense of love the plan is to explore all of these more deeply along with many others throughout the series i started by thinking about language what if love is just a word we overuse We talk about loving our partners or our parents, but we also talk about how we love to sleep in, or we love bacon, or we love Cardi B. What if we just hear so much about love because we throw it around too much? Are other cultures as obsessed with loving things?
3: (laughs) I thought it was so weird when I moved to the US and I think um, it took only a few weeks or maybe months before the people that I got to know, like my friends started Saying "I love you," it felt so absurd. I I was just so certain, like, how could you love me? By but like we we don't even know each other.
0: This is Ida from Oslo, Norway.
3: And I I just realized after a while that it wasn't even my friends, just people that you knew here and there would say "I love you," and it just felt so fake in a way. So I guess in Norway we have two ways to say "I love you." And the one that means love is to elske. Um, so you say, I love you in, jeg elsker deg. But it's only really used with um, with your, I think with your parents and your children and maybe your siblings and your partner, of course. But my best friend, I would never tell her, jeg elsker deg. It's a really... I don't know if you can say an exclusive word, and so we use kind of fond of, glai, i dig. which um, is also kind of you know I wouldn't say that to anyone. I would say that to people that I really really care about. Like first step in a relationship, you always touch base in glai, and then you move to I love you, I elskir.
0: So how long? Would you know someone before dropping "jeg er deg" on them? Oh, like
3: a year, probably. Like if I was dating them.
0: Okay, so like a whole year goes by, and then you're like, you know, I'm fond of you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and
3: before you say "jeg er which also means a lot, it means love in a way. You say, "I like you." Jeg liker I mean, even just the step saying, I like you is a big, you know, I think I like you. So I think in the first few months when I told Ruben, I, I think I like you, he, he didn't respond with the same.
0: Ooh. Yeah. So in case you're keeping track, in Norwegian, you may risk telling someone you like them after a few months. Finally saying you're fond of them after a year. And then by the time you're deeply in love, you don't even have to say the real word. But this is Scandinavia, infamously reserved, stoic, icy. What about in India, famous for its sweeping Bollywood romances? This is Samir, who grew up in Northeast India and speaks several South Asian languages.
3: So in Urdu, for example, there are words like pyar and muhabbat. Muhabbat and mehboob, for example, is your lover, like, you know, the courtship, basically. Whereas Pyar is used in a very general sense. It's used in Hindi as well. And pyar is, you know, you can say pyar, love to anything. Like, you know, I do PR with food, I do pyar with my parents, pyar with coal.
0: Ah, oh, stop. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, <laughs> that, I mean, you
3: can extreme. say that to anything.
0: We'll dive more into the languages of love in future episodes. And you'll also hear more about Ida and Samir's love lives. But English speakers could certainly learn to use a little more nuance when describing feelings of love. In fact, the idea that there are different types of love is supported by science, particularly neurochemistry. I spoke with Jake, a biomedical science student who's a bit of a human hormone research nerd. He told me that love can actually be measured and quantified in the human body, but that it shows up in two distinct phases, which look and act completely different. You have
2: the attraction, where you're getting sweaty palms and fast heartbeat, the obsessive thoughts. And it's got a very distinct kind of neurochemical profile. And then you've got attachment where it's really content and loving
0: and warm and secure. And that, again, looks very different. So let's take them one at a time. How does the uh, attraction look neurochemically? So.
2: Parts of your brain are lighting up that's to do with your mesolimbic system, which is your reward system. Dopamine is kind of the big player in that one there. What dopamine does is it it makes you feel good when you're doing things that uh, your brain kind of thinks it should be doing. I think the easiest way to describe it is it kind of drives you to behave in ways that keep you alive and keep you reproducing.
0: Can you give an example, a non-love related example of this reward?
2: Eating is a good one. So if you can walk into a restaurant and smell the food, you'll probably be feeling a, a bit of a, a dopamine release there. And when you finally get that delicious food and you're enjoying it, that's, that's a big hit. And that, of course, eating being quite important for
0: survival, um, your brain wants to keep you, uh, keep you doing it. Jake tells me that the more uncertain a reward is, the higher rush of dopamine you're going to get. Apparently, you'll find the same dopamine spike in someone who's newly smitten as you'll find in a gambling addict.
2: The other big one is serotonin, but it's less about a flood of serotonin and more about a lowering of serotonin. When you've got lots of serotonin in your system, it's kind of like a mood stabilizer. Like When your serotonin is good, then you're content. And when your serotonin is low, your sense of stability, your sense of control really falls. You become quite obsessive. Studies have been done that kind of show the brain of someone that's newly in love is neurochemically quite similar to the brain of someone with obsessive compulsive disorder
0: <laughs> so it doesn't sound great to have just fallen head over heels for someone if your body is actually depleted of its ability to maintain control it sounds like it turns you into a mess
2: it's uh, it does make
0: you a mess but it makes you a, a very happy mess so when your dopamine is through the roof with the promise of something great and your serotonin, which normally gives you some common sense, has plummeted, you might do something crazy like stand outside someone's house and sing really bad love songs.
2: Interestingly, when you, when you do an fMRI scan on, on brains of people that are newly in love, very similar to brains of people that are high on cocaine.
0: So love, love is a drug? Love is literally a drug. Meanwhile, the love of people who have been together for years presents very differently in the human body. The second
2: phase, attachment, is a much more stable phase. Attachment is all about oxytocin and vasopresin. You can really measure um, monogamy in mammals at least, by the distribution of vasopresin receptors in certain parts of the brain. Out of all of the mammals, something like 3% of them are actually monogamous. And the things that they have in common is, uh, is kind of a larger amount of vasopresin receptors in the right parts of the brain.
0: What mammals are um, are monogamous? I
2: don't, do humans make that list? Uh, technically yes, they do make the list.
0: I'll dive more into phase two in later episodes, including the poor field voles whose vasopressin levels have been messed with to research monogamy. And for what it's worth, Jake tells me that he's personally experienced the first phase of love six times in his life, but the second phase only three times so far. One thing that surprised me was the physiological link between survival instinct and falling in love. I hadn't really thought of love as a matter of survival. The drive to reproduce, maybe, but not romance. But Lou Delane, a developmental psychologist, thinks that's the best way to explain love.
4: Well, from a psychological perspective, love, the closest kind of psychological concept would be what we call attachment, which is an essential human need. And it's from in the womb all the way until we die. We need attachment. And attachment is a close, caring bond with another. Obviously, when we are infants, we are absolutely helpless. (laughs) And if we don't have the safe, secure care of an adult, we will die. That's the reality. (laughs) So
0: initially, attachment is survival because you just need someone else there
4: absolute survival so it's it's that's and that's why it's so hardwired you know again to make it very cold and scientific (laughs) it's wired into us to seek out attachment because it stops us from dying
0: (laughs) whereas those animals who just like fall out and then trot off happily they probably don't have attachment issues
4: yeah so so basically and obviously as we get older we you know, for example, when we learn to walk, we can start exploring the world kind of on our own. But you know, if you watch a toddler, they'll only get so far before they look back to check that you know mum or dad is watching. And but then what happens, I guess, is developmentally we we become more and more self. We become more and more able to manage without our parents. And but we've inter... that's because we've kind of internalised them, and they've kind of taught us to be able to be independent from them. But then we move more towards peers. If you think about kind of adolescence, particularly I think societally adolescent girls, that really close bond with the best friend, like it really gets transferred over to to kind of best friends. And then in your, obviously this is societal norms and it varies, but you know, then eventually your main attachment transfers to a romantic partner.
0: Hmm. We start to learn to walk on our own and go out on our own. You said like the kid is still looking back and seeing mom and dad. So is, the, is it the trust that you've still got, that support system, what helps you go out on your own?
4: Yes, exactly. Couldn't have said it better. Yeah. Um, really, it's knowing that if we turn back, someone is there. That is what enables us to confidently go out into the world. And I guess the, uh, the part that leads, you know, when I think about love, it's so entangled in this because our early experiences of attachment set up what we seek out in a partner so in that way very important but also you know this idea that it doesn't stop it just transfers so of course our attachment needs are so different when we're an adult but we still have such a need for attachment and it can come in so many different forms you know you're still often looking back to your parent at at some point or another throughout your adult life to say hey I don't know how to do this or is this okay but you know you also look to friends for that need and um and, and for many people, a partner as well, although obviously that's not the case for everyone.
0: Apparently the big problem with this, and the reason Lou and so many other psychologists will always have clients, is that not only do we learn the need for love from our parents, but we also learn how to love from our parents, who aren't guaranteed to be the best teachers.
4: So the issue with, atta- well, the, the complication with attachment and love is that there is no preset definition we learn what attachment means through our earliest attachments Mm -hmm. and through societal messages like hollywood movies you know really make realistic representations of love and normalize love is and what we can and can't expect from it and how one should be treated in it it's wired into us what love and attachment is and also how it can make us feel so we'll pair the word love or attachment with whatever experiences we had from our caregivers so getting a bit on the darker side of love but if 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 our caregivers were abusive that gets incorporated into our concept of what attachment is and what love is and so really it's devastating to think okay well maybe then that becomes part of our definition of, of what what's okay and not what's okay, but certainly what's familiar. You know, if, if we felt like love was kind of conditional, like, yeah, we get, of course we get love, but we have to kind of not fully be ourselves or we kind of have to work really hard or we have to kind of, you know, then that becomes our strategy to seek that connection. Because we're so hardwired for that attachment, we will adapt and do whatever we need to do to secure that.
0: I think I'm so used to hearing about love as this all healing positive force that it honestly came as a surprise to hear Lou say that if you're doing it wrong, if you're showing love wrong, it can also be harmful. And maybe more troubling after talking to Jake and Lou is this idea that love is out of our control. It's just the way the hormones work in our body. It's just how we're wired as a kid. But I spoke to one more person, Dr. Elizabeth Reed Boyd, who is the head of the newly formed Love Research Group at Edith Cowan University. She prefers to think of love not as a condition or a deep-seated need, but as a choice. Choosing to love someone, as she puts it, is the ultimate freedom.
1: I do think that it is radical because you can't demand someone loves you and you can't force someone to love you. It, it can be given, but it can't be taken. It can be legislated, but you can't cage someone in, in, and force them to love you. So it, it, it is extraordinary in that sense. Maybe that's a romantic point of view, but, but probably it's just a hopeful point of view and an idealistic point of view, like friendship friendship's a gift you can't force anyone to be your friend so it's a it's one of the few things that we can conceptualize as a free gift and I see love is the same the same thing and none of us are easy to love and so, uh, all of the time or perhaps none of the time so it, it is a, a decision but it's a free decision to make to choose to to love someone and commit to loving someone even when it's difficult
0: I have to admit that I hadn't really thought about this concept of giving love as a gift. When I started these interviews, I was stuck in my own head, thinking about how someone made me feel, whether I loved them. I hadn't even conceptualized it as my chance to offer love to someone else. And in this podcast, I'm going to be talking with people who have chosen to give love, who have chosen to receive love, who have found it in unexpected ways, even revolutionary ways. I'll be getting details from Ida, Samir, Jake, Lou, and a lot more. If the ability to love is universal, there are still as many ways to experience it and express it as there are people on the planet. And maybe that's behind one of my biggest questions of all. If the most exciting thing about love is how it just makes you go crazy for one person, how one incredible somebody can become your whole world, then how is love also the thing that unites the world? that shared thread of humanity that connects us all. Two different people who I interviewed from Southern Africa about romantic love both brought up the concept of Ubuntu. This is Shelton from Zimbabwe.
3: Our
1: culture, we've got this thing called Ubuntu. It's called togetherness, right?
4: So by nature, we are loving people, okay? So we're a community. Or to everybody, you know, I love you. dokuda. Right? You're part of us. You're part of the community.
0: To me, this societal togetherness and the desire to shower so much love just on one person seem like almost counteracting forces. But I've still got a lot to learn, and we'll talk more about this next episode. So thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon.